Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I have the privilege to sit down with John Montgomery, founder and CIO of Bridgeway Capital Management. Bridgeway has been running model-driven investment strategies since 1993, but that's not the only thing that makes the firm unique. From giving back to attracting the best people to thinking long-term, John explains how the firm delivers and builds on Bridgeway's mission. Then we get into investing and talk to John about factors, his contrarian mindset, and Bridgeway's core investment criteria and their focus on discipline and consistency. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Bridgeway Capital's John Montgomery. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here, Justin. We're going to talk a lot of investing today, but before we do, I wanted to start by asking you about the unique way Bridgeway operates as a company. Um, You give a portion of your profits to charity, you cap your compensation of the highest employee according to your stewardship commitment, and um, you have a policy of making all employees long-term owners of the company. So these are very different things than you would typically see maybe from a Wall Street firm or, or other large asset management companies. So maybe to start, I just wanted to ask you what led you to set up the firm in this way? Um, well, right off the bat, Justin, one thing uh, I'll do is there's a there's a there are probably a, a half dozen or more other uh, interesting uh, aspects of our culture and things you mentioned. But one of them is we don't use the word employee at Bridgeway. Um, uh, words are important and we uh, think about our uh, values um, and uh, how we use words and the derivation of the word employee um, comes from uh, French background meaning uh, used. So the employer is the person that's using uh, the employee. And I like to say anytime you're willing to um, talk about your uh, fellow uh, workers here as somebody you're using, then I'm comfortable with using employee. Otherwise, we use we default to the um, term partner or more generically um, colleague in that. But that's just an example of how important we feel um, culture is. So how did we, how did you ask the question, how did I make the decision to go a different uh, direction uh, from Wall Street? Well, uh, first of all, I didn't come from Wall Street, so it wasn't, it wasn't very hard to uh, um, just start from scratch. Um, uh, another aspect of that uh, was it's unusual to start a company in a business where you've never worked before. Transportation was my previous um, uh, profession, and uh, the commonality of that was numbers and statistics, which is thus how you get uh, a statistically driven evidence-based firm called um, Bridgeway. But it's also, uh, at some level, easier than that. Um, uh, just started thinking about, first of all, um, you know, we're managing money as an investment advisory firm, um, and it attracts people um, who are um, aggressive with financial goals, uh, is what I would say. And my wife and I had already achieved the level of, we could say, the American dream that we aspired to. Um, so money wasn't really uh, the next thing on our list. Uh, our goals weren't very high. Um, from the uh, career uh, that I had started before. And we got married when we were 21. So 
Um, those just weren't the, the top things on our list. But purpose in life was, and I thought, you know, if you're going to start a company from scratch, think of everything that's gone in your career up to that point uh, in a different direction. And when you start a new company, you get a chance to like create it from scratch. You don't have to do all those things. Um, so one of them was creating uh, a great place to work. If you're going to spend all this time um, at, a, at a place, uh, you want to do that. And we get awards is a great place to work. Um, our clients come first, and so integrity is our number one business value. Uh, we think a lot about uh, how you can differentiate yourself and, frankly, have a lot more fun uh, in life. And the third aspect of that is community. So those are the three C's, um, uh, clients, colleagues, and community. And, you know, those were just some early ideas. Money wasn't first. Um, I, I'm a member of a organization called the Tugboat Institute, and they say profits are not the end um, goal, uh, but they're the fuel. So purpose, whatever your purpose is, that's the end goal. Um, profits are key to get there. They're the fuel of how you do so. So we don't poo-poo profits. They're important, and we're an investment adv advisory firm. We certainly look at profits of the organizations um, that we're purchasing. You had mentioned on uh, a interview with Barry Ritholtz that, you know, some of these, the structure, the unique structure of Bridgeway have benefited you as a firm. So can you maybe just talk to some of the benefits that you've gotten over time with the unique structure that you just explained? Sure. Um, so a couple of, uh, well, several things come to mind, really. And if you stick with the three uh, C's there, one is uh, if you have an empowering um, uh group of people that you work with, um, our partnership, um, that's going to lead to good things. We, we aspire to long-term relationships, uh, and then you can pour yourself by way of relationship and resources and training uh, into the people that you, you hire, um, and that benefits the business in you know, any number of obvious ways, um, by way of longevity, by way of um, positive engagement. Um, by way of really seriously trying to do uh, what's in the best interest of, we say, our current investors. So that would certainly be um, one. You know, the, the giving back half is probably the most strange one because you think, well, if you're giving half away, then you've got half left over. Um, and that's actually what I thought at the very beginning of Founding Bridgeway as well. It's like, well, you know, um, we, won't, we won't be as tempted by just you know, what money can buy and all the stuff, because life's really about relationships and things that are more important. Uh, and at the end of a decade at Bridgeway, I thought, shoot, this didn't work at all. The half that we've got left over is much bigger than the full pie that we would have had had we started out in a very different way. And I promise you, if more business people could get inside my head and see the reality of that statement, there would be a lot more generous giving companies uh, in our uh, culture and nation. So the giving half, that was, you started that on day one? Yes. That was a founding, amazing. Wow, that's, what's your selection criteria for the charities that you support? Um, is there something specific you like to look for or? Yes, well, part of our um, vision uh, uh, written on our mission statement is a bit unusual for an investment advisory firm, um, our, our clients and what we're about and changing the world uh, internally uh, as a piece of that as well. But part the, the lead-in that's quite different is a world without genocide. 
part of our purpose, literally, uh, for being uh, on the face of the earth and doing what we do uh, is to end genocide. Um, so that's a, that's a key, um, a uniting um, effort in our giving back and our philanthropy. Um, but it goes broader than that as well. Not everybody, uh, like I do, um, wakes up in the morning, puts their feet on the floor and goes like, ah, let's go you know, work on ending another war. Um, people have different things that uh, inspire them. And we uh, try and identify those and, and support each other uh, at Bridgeway to do those. So among the partners that I work with, um, education is very important to um, many of us, if not most of us uh, here at Bridgeway. And we do several things by way of uh, education um, locally and nationally. Um, microfinance uh, uh, is, a, is a point of connection for a lot of people for probably obvious reasons. If you're dealing in finance, then um, empowering people and figuring out how to, um, I had a friend that used to say, uh, what you really have to be careful about is not doing more damage uh, than good as you're trying to help people. So we think about sustainability, we think about empowering rather than disempowering as we're um, working. And it's also not just about money there. We engage um, with our labor. We go out together as a team and do stuff in the community um, uh, connected with our annual retreat. Um, I serve on um, a couple of boards, uh, nonprofit boards outside of Bridgeway. And um, we mix it up and learn from each other and are inspired by that. You can take any partner at Bridgeway, uh, ask them, you know, what lights them up and what are they doing and what are they about and how does it connect with uh, giving program at Bridgeway and they'll have their own inspiring story to tell. We talked to a lot of quantitative investors on the podcast and one of the things that's always the most interesting for me is sort of how they got there. You know, what in the beginning of their investment career, what led them to adopt the quantitative approach versus what a lot of people do, which is thinking they can pick stocks. And I'm wondering if there's anything for you that got you that sort of made you le uh, go towards a quantitative approach to investing. Yes. Um, so two things. Um, one, just most generally, I'm an engineer. I love to fix things. Um, and, you know, science and statistics and empirical evidence um, is part of my background and thoroughly ingrained in kind of a worldview. Apart from that, um, my, I had two, uh, two advanced degrees. So I have an engineering degree, um, a master's from MIT. Uh, so that's the part that, I, that relates to what I just said. And then I went back to school about uh, five years later and got an MBA from Harvard Business School. So I'm, I'm at Harvard Business School and I'm even in, I'm in a different industry, but I thought, well, I'll take a few investing courses while I'm here and maybe earn back the opportunity cost of, you know, having taken two years off to go to business school. That was my thought. So it's kind of an alarge like, oh, this will, you know, this will be kind of a sideline, but interesting thing to do. So I'm in one of those investing courses, second year, um, and it's a, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, uh, it, it's a class on a quant. Um, and so there's numbers and statistics and in investing, and I'm fascinated. I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do this. I thought, you know, you interviewed management and you did the, you know, the historic CFA deal and, you know, you had a view on the economy and then, you know, industry and then companies and all this stuff. I grew up the same way. Um, and, but I'm in this class, I'm exposed to this. At the end of the class, the professor steps back and he strokes his beard and he goes like, so how many people in this class think when they get out of Harvard Business School and go to Wall Street, because most of those classmates did, uh, could beat this track record. And I'm looking around the room and 80% of the hands go up. 
now I'm already familiar with the 80 20 rule. I'm going like, you know, I didn't know the degree to which is true, but after costs, you know, it's, it's the other way around. 80% of the hands go up. And it's not because I'm, these are arrogant people. They're actually, you know, more down to earth than I thought before uh, going there. It's simply that they're used to succeeding. They have a, a view of, you know, their own talent and being able to ferret this out. And that's the normal model of bright people doing in investments. And my, the thought that jumped in my mind was, if that's true, if 80% of the people think they can beat the market and only 20% of the people say can, that's an opportunity for, quanti for quantitative methods. You should be able to come in with the discipline uh, of data and quantitative methods. Today, we'd say, you know, AI in there somewhere. Um, but that's, uh, that's a big advantage. And this was an insight from, you know, 35 years ago. Um, but it was a quantitative and a behavioral finance um, insight before I knew what behavioral finance was. So that started me thinking about how to apply quantitative methods. That's what lit me up. And I'd say that was, you know, a point in time that set me on a path to um, doing what we do, how we do. It's, it's interesting because that overconfidence sort of plays into every part of life. You know, if you ask people if you're an above average driver, um, I, th I think the numbers are something like 90% of people think they're an above average driver. So I think it, yeah. it sort of carries to every aspect of our lives. And it could be, it yes. can obviously be really dangerous in investing. The, the, the Lake, the Lake Wobegon effect, I believe, for sure. And, but you're right. It, that aspect um, is, uh, is, is part of it. The other psychological aspect that's key, I think, to investing is um, that the tools that you use that, that work in many areas of your life get you off track in investing. And that works like this. We call it the, the behavior gap, uh, a term coined by Carl Richards, uh, which is um, you uh, normally, like you're buying a refrigerator, you go out, you do reviews, you find out what's you know good, you get this thing, you ask your friends, you do research on the, you know, the, the company, and, you, and, and then you go out and buy a great refrigerator. You do that with a, a stock, um, and uh, the problem is managements can pull the wool over your eyes. Um, you have a natural tendency uh, to buy what's done outrageously well um, right now and then hold it too long. That's a momentum. Momentum's a, a fast moving. Um, but it's not a great way to buy stock and hold on to it for five or 10 years. Um, so what works in one area of life uh, actually gets you in trouble uh, in investing. That sort of leads right into my next question, which is there, there are many approaches to investing that are being utilized today that are not necessarily based on long-term evidence of what works. And you guys had an interesting phrase on your website that talked about your approach, and you talked about it having an evidence-based worldview. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what that means in terms of how you build portfolios and how you manage money. Um, well, at, at Bridgeway, I like to say from a quantitative standpoint, we believe in two things, a risk-based view, but also a, a behavioral-based um, uh, worldview. So we believe in numbers and statistics um, and modeling and all of the good and also um, hard things about using statistics. Um, the good things are the discipline, um, the ability to go back in history and see, see how things have actually worked. Um, and, uh, and the downside is data mining. That's public enemy number one of how we do what we do. Uh, so we're always guarding against data mining. We have, you know, half dozen ways to try and guard against it. 
Um, one of our one of our team members, the director of research, is amazing at this. Like he is so good and so allergic to aspects of data mining. That's helpful to have um, on the team uh, for sure. Uh, but another member of our team, Kailu, likes to say, you know, the problem is the only true out of sample, which is one way we avoid data mining. The only true out of sample is called the future. So, you know, like that's a that's a fair statement. And people, you know, like there's a lot of uh, recent, um, uh, you know, talk about factors of size and quality. And if you take size, for example, um, we like to say, well, yes, it goes through long periods of being out of favor, but our true out of sample called the future is the entire uh, 23 year track record of um, our ultra small company market fund. So very small company. And it's done quite well over that full period. One of the things when, when we started running, you know, we some, run some quantitative strategies ourselves. And when we first started doing it, one of the things we, we did is we built strategies for ourselves. And so I, I'm a very risk tolerant investor. I love the high factor exposure, you know, really focused portfolio. And then we put those out in the real world and we realized, you know what, nobody can actually stick with these things. Um, these things deviate so much from the market that our investors just aren't able to handle that. And I'm wondering how you look at that balance, the balance between getting factor exposure in your strategies, but also thinking about, all right, can people in the real world actually follow these? Because the most aggressive strategies, you know, almost nobody can actually follow those. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say almost nobody, but you're right. And that has been our experience uh, at Bridgeway. Personally, I have a very high tolerance for short, what we would think of as short-term risk. I really do have a long-term view I have a, a static uh, target asset allocation that always has me rebalancing back into what's done most poorly um, recently. And um, it's true though, you know, the, and by the way, this is not just retail. This is not just your average individual investor out there. This is true of pension funds and foundations and consultants. Um, there's, there's not a lot of appetite um, for um, for not hugging the benchmark, and of course that's gotten much much worse or much more strong uh, in the last decade and two, uh, with the advent and and huge growth of passive uh, investing uh, and indexing. The indexes um, are a big deal. And of course, the advantage there is low low cost, um, and uh, you have to be you have to be willing to put up with. Uh, returns that don't track that index. So in a quarter, in a year, even for multi-year periods of time, uh, if you have a very disciplined uh, strategy, whether it's quantitative or not, um, you've got, uh, there are fewer people that are really up for that. So I think it's a point well taken. Um, we have some strategies that recognize that and other ones that are kind of the same as they were 20, um, you know, 27 years ago. Uh, at Bridgeway, and we just, some of them just don't care about tracking error of the benchmark. One of the things we talked about with Jim O'Shaughnessy when he was on the podcast is this whole idea of that investors have two points of failure, which gets at the point you were talking about, which is one point of failure is when the market's down, they're going to panic and they're going to sell. And the second is when they're underperforming, they're going to panic and they're going to sell. And, you know, as, as I've done this for a while, and I, I want to see if you agree with this, I, I tend to think the second one might be a bigger problem than the first one. Like, it's, it's almost harder to watch people around you making money while you're not than it is to actually lose money while everybody else is losing money. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Um, so the disposition effect uh, would say that the downside is more painful than the upside. So I think there might be something there. 
Um, but your point is right on target overall. Like it's, it's uh, you know, Carl Richards re refers to it as the cycle of fear and greed. Um, when things are going great, you think, oh, I, you know, how did I miss that? I need to get in. I need to get in. And on the other hand, you like, then you get in and it reverts to the meaning. You're like, oh, no, it's down, you know, experts. Why did I ever think that this was a good idea? Um, so uh, you sell and, and chase the next hot thing. Um, you know, there's research, good research that says even if you buy at the top of something, and, but hold on to it long term, you, you tend to do very well. I like to say have a have a have a static um, asset allocation. Uh, write it down, stick to it. Always rebalance back to the target, which forces you to turn the behavior gap um, that you mentioned on its head. In looking at the strategies that you run, it seems like there's three sort of themes that play a role in the selection process: the company, financial health, price momentum and also some value metrics, I think, come in there. But before, we wanna talk um, through each of those with you, but before we get into that, could you maybe just at a higher level walk us through your overall portfolio construction process and I guess your, your philosophy in terms of building these, these systematic portfolios? Yes, so we have, uh, we have two groups of, uh, of um, strategies at Bridgeway. Uh, called Omni and Select, and they work a little bit different. Omni is where we're just trying to um, capture aspects of some unique asset class put together in an, in an unusual way. Um, so one of our long-term uh, strategies is our blue chip uh, fund, and um, it's non-market cap weighted, very large cap, we call ultra large cap um, strategy. So we're just trying to give you exposure to that and and in return, you get a, a very low expense ratio. And that's an example of one of our uh, Omni funds. We've got an Omni fund that's on the other end of the size spectrum we call our ultra small company market fund. Um, so uh, so we're, we have some uh, tilts, but mostly with those strategies, we're just trying to give you exposure to whatever the name of the, of the strategy uh, says, and we do it in ways that are thoughtful, and, and, and sometimes uh, there's no one else out there uh, doing it. So you won't find many non-market non cap weight, weighted, um, very passive strategies like our blue chip. Uh, and then on the other hand, we're a small company. So, so the big guys are too big to offer a really, a truly small cap, ultra small cap um, strategy. Those are both, um, those are both on the uh, Omni side. I think of uh, equal interest is what we call select, and that's where we had these three groupings that you speak of, um, value, momentum, company, financial health. Uh, and the key aspect, uh, two of them, uh, there are more, but two key aspects of the portfolio construction there um, are that we're always rebalancing to target weights of those three categories. Uh, and again, that forces you to always be adding more money into what's done poorly uh, and taking money away from what's done well. Um, and over the long term, uh, that has both some key risk, positive risk uh, characteristics. Um, it also tends to tilt your overall portfolio construction toward value, which we like. That's been seriously out of favor the last five years. Um, but, uh, but long term, we know that that's uh, one of the granddaddies of uh, factor investing. So we like that from a portfolio construction. Uh, so rebalancing back to target weights of those three categories. And then likewise, we don't 
uh, I'm not a fan of market cap weighting uh, overall. Um, it's the it, it's um, it, it's a momentum type strategy without a rebalance. So uh, something goes up and up and up, and you ride it up, and then it crashes, and you you crash right down uh, with it. It's also got aspects of non-diversification um, that we don't like. So Apple makes a of a huge um, percent of the total uh, market capitalization right now. I remember when funds were filing to become non-diversified funds back in 1999 because Microsoft was getting to be too huge a piece of the pie. I mean, this is an S&P 500 index fund filing to be a non-diversified fund. Stop and think about that for just a second. There's a, like, there's a red flag in there somewhere. So those are two aspects of our portfolio construction, the rebalancing um, and the non-market cap weighting. How, let's peel back the onion a little bit on a value. Some investors, um, some quant investors have a specific value factor they use while others might use something like a composite approach. So multiple value factors. So how do you, um, you know, how do you think about, I guess, you know, value and the best way to define it and capture it when building these types of strategies? Um, uh, we're a fan of multi-metric um, uh, aspects of any factor. Uh, so, um, our director of research uh, completed a project a couple of years ago, and we've got a thought piece out on it uh, just on that um, aspect. Um, and he, he used uh, value as the factor to look at. You could look at other factors and come up with a very similar conclusion, but it was dramatic because he went back to the full uh, FAMA French or the Ken French library of factors um, with respect. I think there were three or four different metrics of value. Um, and, you know, price to book is the academic gold standard of uh, thinking about value. Uh, so you can look at how that performed over the long term and in decade by decade. And then he went back and took a, just a plain vanilla, equal weighted, um, uh, four different um, measures of uh, value like price to sales, price to earnings, and added those in. When you add them in, what you learn is that um, it does a little bit better over time, but the risk is, the risk aspects are like noticeably better. So you get a little bit of maybe on uh, return um, any one year. One of those four metrics is obviously going to be the leader versus the average. So you'll never be at the top, but you'll never be at the bottom. And it gives you a, a less bumpy ride along the way. And Jack, I think back to your earlier point, um, a less bumpy road is is good for keeping people in a strategy. Quality is probably one factor that most investors um, find difficult to sometimes define. And it seems like when you're referring to your company financial health um, sort of category or criteria, at least in part, I think you're referring to, to a quality factor. So just in, in general, what types of metrics are you looking at when you're trying to find those quality or financially healthy companies? Um, well, I agree with your point. Um... Uh, you know, there is a gold standard of measuring uh, value. There's not really a gold standard of measuring quality. It's it's harder to get your head around. Like we all think we know what it means, right? You go to the store, like that one's a piece of, you know, garbage and this one's high quality. Uh, and you might be able to find the same for a stock, but it's, it's much more difficult um, to quantify. But we look at uh, a number of uh, classical um, uh, measures and some combinations that are um, proprietary. Uh, but re things like return on equity um, would be uh, one. 
Um, there are interesting aspects of return on assets, which has some different flavor to it. Um, you know, debt to uh, different different metrics of debt. I like debt to market capitalization versus um, you know debt to equity, for example. Uh, what you include uh, in the numerator and the denominator uh, makes a difference. Um, how quickly you update your data makes a difference. There are a lot of things around the periphery where you can add or subtract value. Um, but I am a fan for um, uh, for those in the company financial health category overall. Uh, it does correlate strongly with quality, so I'd agree with your statement, Justin. Um, other things that uh, we might look at uh, would be um, earnings, um, uh, might be earnings, um, trends, um, could be uh, quality of those earnings themselves uh, measured in you know, some different ways. Um, some things uh, that are in, some people put in the sentiment category, that's another category that gets defined a lot of different ways. Um, but you can, you can put most of these things under a quality banner, and if you run it through a you know, a regression analysis with one or more of these um, classic definitions of value, then our company financial health uh, tends to bend that direction. Momentum is, is one that, you know, is in many ways is the simplest factor because it's just about buying things that have gone up, you know, maybe in an intermediate term period. But behind the scenes, there's, there's usually a lot more going on than that. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you guys think about momentum. Well, um, we think about uh, price momentum uh, and we think about it in different uh, time periods. So most classically, um, momentum works particularly well in then say a three to six month period, maybe stretch it out to aspects with 12 months. Um, a one month uh, period of momentum is actually upside down. So um, uh, you need to be careful about the very short term. However, there are some even shorter ones that if you hold them long enough, uh, behave back like we think uh, about momentum. These are things that are documented in academic studies. Um, before we would actually use any of them, we always replicate the research ourselves and say, how does it, how does it, do we agree? Are there any mistakes in the research and how would you um, fold it in? So price momentum is big. Um, there are disadvantages of price momentum. Momentum crashes is, you know, the classic ones. Um, we also know that there's a flavor of down market in the last decade, um, which is uh, which which was not true in the market prior to the 2008 um, downturn, and momentum models are in particular uh, susceptible um, to those. So th these are gives you a flavor for you know numbers and statistics is what we do. We look at different market environments. We want anything we do. We want to know how it is likely to, or at least historically, how it has it. Um, performed uh, so that you're not surprised. And then the futures, uh, our director of research says that the, the, you know, the, the future is not going to be, is not going to replicate history, uh, but it's going, but it rhymes. <laughs> so that's how we think about it. Uh, one of the things we found in studying successful investors of the long term like you is there typically is always a period somewhere in their history where either they had a big mistake they made or they went through a period where they underperformed for a while. And 
sort of how they came back from that and what they learned from that ended up being very important in their long-term success. And I know you focus a lot on your mistakes and learning from them at Bridgeway. I think I read somewhere you have, you know, you have a mistake wall where you put up your mistakes and you, you mention them often in your client letter. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about maybe some mistakes you've made in the past or some periods where you've struggled and maybe what you've learned from them that's, you know, helped you become the investor you are today. Um, definitely. Like I've lived long enough to make some mistakes. Um, and, um, you know, not surprising as an engineer, I like to document those and not repeat them. Um, we actually have a mistakes ball at Bridgeway. It's a baseball in a little plastic case, and we pass it on to the newest partner that comes into Bridgeway that we hire. Um, and what we say about this, like it's physical, you see it, you think about it. Um, the idea is that we are going to make mistakes. And if we're going to achieve what's written on our mission statement, you've got to take some risk. But you want to manage those risks, and you don't want to repeat them. You absolutely want to learn from them. So I'm a big believer uh, in the learning from uh, mistakes, but also not hitting people over the head for making them, because that's a great way to end up with people um, who are very conservative and end up with all kinds of problems like, like the buy, buy high, sell low syndrome that we were talking about before. So. Um, uh, Jack, help me get back to your specific question within that, though. I was just wondering if there was a, a significant mistake in your own career or a period where maybe your strategy struggled that you that you learned a lot from. Yeah, so a specific one. Uh, a, a good example would be penny stocks in 2009. Okay, so we have this uh, strategy of very small uh, companies we call ultra small. Um, so it's the ultra small company market fund and it's invested in companies the size of the smallest 10% in the New York Stock Exchange. Um, one of the things that um, that our primary market benchmark, uh, the CRISP 10 cap weighted portfolio index, that's a mouthful, um, uh, does is they, uh, they, they're not going to tend to own penny stocks. Uh, if you have a stock that goes below a dollar and you can't um, adjust for capital reasons, then you, you get booted off an exchange um, after a period of time, and then you're, you're delisted and you're not part of the index anymore. Um, so we thought, well, this is an interesting um, aspect. How have penny stocks done over the long term? And it turns out um, in round numbers, penny stocks adjusted for everything else underperformed the market by about a half percentage point a year. Well, that's big enough to get our attention. And so in this strategy, you could have, you, you come up along, you get penny stocks from time to time. Uh, and we, and it's a sidestep. We're like, we don't invest in penny stocks partly because they're not in the index because of this um, delisting rule. Um, but we, it, we were doing this and in 2009, what happened was the market crashed. Uh, you get a lot of small companies that become much, much smaller companies. Their price dips below one. Um, and, uh, and we suspended the penny stock rule. So we, we stopped selling, um, but we still weren't buying significant numbers of these penny stocks. Um, in, 19, in 2009, at the peak, penny stocks made up 11% of our primary market benchmark in companies this small. 11% is a big number. Typically, it was like 2 2.5%. In the crash, it, it zooms up to 11%. Um, it's not part of our direct process. We, don't, we hadn't, didn't track these before. Um, in 
2009, what do you think the average return of a penny stock in this index was? It had to be huge, I would imagine. It was 286%. Wow. So, like, if you didn't own a handful of them in the index that goes up that much, you're going to lag the index. And it caused our fund, our strategy to lag by double digits in the year. Like, it was a big number all on the all on the backs of this one thing. What I learned from that is if there's a factor exposure, especially one that's not directly part of your process, be aware of it, track it, and, and be aware of when it gets to be a bigger piece of the pie. So in March, fast forward in March of 2020, not quite a year ago, uh, the market goes way down with the pandemic. Our ultra small company market goes way down and all of a sudden there are penny stocks everywhere in the index. So we stopped, was like, pause. We remember 2009, we're tracking penny stocks now. Um, and, and we asked the question, what's the percentage of penny stocks in the index today? It was 16%. That had not been true in 90 years of the index. So that gets your attention. And what's the risk? Well, we'd lived through it before. So now we knew what the risk was. Um, and we have a, uh, an investment process of balancing back toward the index when something is way out of whack like that. So we're actively adding penny stocks um, to the strategy. By the way, they're obviously less liquid, so you have to work harder at this um, until we get it back up to the index level. No, we're not making a bet on penny stocks, right? We're not. That's not the purpose of the strategy. But you hug the index when it gets when something goes haywire and out of um, focus and that has helped tremendously in the performance of the strategy since then. So uh, a learning for me is if there's something that's not a part of your process that can affect your returns, make sure you're 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 tracking that as well. That's really interesting. Um, I also wanted to ask you about the importance of disagreement. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big value guy, and you know, one of the things I did early in my career is I just surrounded myself with other value guys, and so they could just tell me that I was right. And I've sort of learned as time's gone by that that's probably not the best way to do it. And in, in other interviews, you've talked about how important disagreement is in Bridgeway's approach. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that and how you incorporate that into how you operate and you manage your portfolios. Um, well, in terms of the dynamics of the team, I guess is where, where, it's, most, um, where it's most clear. Uh, we believe in uh, diversity, um, diversification at a you know, portfolio level, diversity in terms of uh, the people that you have in the room with you for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, if you're just listening to people uh, that think like you do, you're in a silo and you can look at our country and the politics and, and see the problems of, of doing that. So I'm a huge believer um, in uh, dialogue. Bridgeway has a whole program that we call servant leadership of listening um, not going up a ladder of assumptions. Um, uh, we, have, we have learning partners. So you measure their tests you can take to, to get cognitive diversity. I'm paired up with a person at Bridgeway who is most unlike me in terms of how he makes decisions. And we drive each other nuts for obvious reasons. But we are absolutely 100% committed to the relationship because we learn from each other. And when he shows up in my space and he says, John, you know, he's usually, well, we're always respectful. That's another aspect of the diversity. I like the phrase, we're respecting all people, all of the time, no exceptions. That last part is rough. Like, that's a very high standard 
Um, but if you're serious about that, you get more of the benefit of diversity on the team. So we're looking for people that you respect who are you know, highly skilled, who don't agree with you, and you want more of that on the team. The person that I've worked most long on the face of the earth is Elena on our investment management team, an amazing uh, leader. Um, and like our minds do not work the same way, but we love being with each other because we're always learning from each other. Uh, and if it's, if it's a project management thing, it's like, I'm not gonna override her, her opinion or her decision on something because I know she's good at this. She's much better um, than me. And if I show up and say, I've had this thought and it's an intuitive thought, but I think we should listen to like, she's gonna stop even though she's like really driven by numbers and statistics. Like, okay, John's asking you to suspend this again. But she's going to listen and see, is there a truth underneath that? And I think that's great for any team, any thought process, and it certainly and especially includes investment. John, sometimes when we're talking about quantitative models and this type of investing, you know, people often think that these things just like run on autopilot and just kind of develop themselves. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, behind each investment strategy, there's a thoughtful person or team that's making decisions and testing various different types of strategies and factors. Um, so I wanted just to ask you, has your, maybe give us an example or two of how your process has evolved over time. Um, you know, when we had, going back to the interview with Jim O'Shaughnessy, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with his book, What Works on Wall Street, you know, O'Shaughnessy's strategies have sort of evolved over time as we've gotten more data on things and as he's looked at different metrics. So I'm just wondering from Bridgeway's perspective, like how have your strategies evolved and, and what and what does it take to change a strategy? Well, um, there are both sides of that. So I'd say, you know, front and center and higher up is the discipline of having a process and following the process. And since we're statistically driven, evidence-based, um, you know, we do the research, we do the modeling, uh, we, we write that down, we document it, um, and then, you know, then you get to, if, well, by the way, you know, 90% of research goes in the trash can, and we celebrate that. It's not, not everything you think uh, of. And, and by the way, there's a bias not to do that among quants, right? You don't want to do all this work and then just throw it in the trash can. That's a bias that we have. It's like, so we celebrate the ones that go in the trash can just as well as the ones that we implement. Um, but... Um, you know, things do evolve over time uh, in the process. I would, you know, but the, you know, the basic core hasn't changed squat since the beginning 28 years ago. Uh, we're still focused on the numbers. Um, things that are different are my views on um, risk. I used to think like everything was driven by risk and you could, you could track that uh, exactly. Um, and the thing that threw me off was the low vol effect. It's like we're taking kind of the textbook academic measure, measure of low risk and high risk by standard deviation of returns, let's say. And, and, and if you believe in risk, I'm thinking like, okay, so high risk you should be rewarded more for. And that means that, uh, you know, it should do well over the long term with a lot more volatility in the short term and the reverse. And it turns out that's not the case. Likewise, beta, you know, low beta outperforms. So um, I had to come to terms with the, the, the data speaking to me in different ways than what I grew up with and what I believe. 
Um, so what about that? Well, the human, the human tendency is to block all that information out. Like once you've decided how the world works, very strong human tendency to look for information that corroborates what your opinion and keep away the data that doesn't. We're always straining. We're human, like we've got a pulse, <laughs> but we're always straining to do the opposite of that. So now I'm a believer in behavioral finance as well as um, you know, the risk uh, view and it, and it incorporates some of this and it complicates things. Um, but that would be a change in our process that we're more open to non-risk-based factors um, and strategies and things that affect um, trading. And some of this, you know, would fall under supply and demand. Um, you know, we have um, interesting recent um, uh, experience uh, in the marketplace with uh, game stock and what I call the Robin Hood uh, stocks on that. You can look at this as supply and demand and it all lines up pretty, pretty nicely. Um, and you can guess, you know, the directions of what's going to happen when things are this far out of favor, but, um, but you're probably not going to get the timing right. Don't ever, ever, ever think um, that, you'll, that you'll nail the top or the bottom. Uh, and that's something um, that I would say our process has more specifically recognizes uh, than in the beginning. You know, when you're 40 or 30 um, and you look at a certain amount of data, you think that's a lifetime of data. <laughs> and it is, but it's still not long enough. Um, and I like to think there's always one more standard deviation uh, of out of favor you can get. So at the end of, at the end of 2019, um, value, large cap value stocks had been out of favor relative to growth stocks as measured by the Russell 1000 um, indices of each um, in round numbers, 10% a year, three years in a row. That, those are very large numbers. And you could say, well, it's obvious value is going to come back. And so I'm going to, you know, leverage value. And you would have been wiped out in 2020 because that was a 30 plus uh, percent um, year of growth outperforming value. Um, so there's always one more standard deviation that can happen. Don't ever think that you can time it. Um, but it does mean from a risk standpoint, we always look like, okay, this may be really cheap or it may be really something that we measure statistically, but what would one more standard deviation do um, uh, relative to what you've got in your, in your database? Good, good. Thank you for that. That's... Um... The uh, next question I want to ask you is related to value. And to your point, you know, up until maybe just even a few months ago, value had struggled a lot. Um, and there's different narratives as to why that might be. Some pe people basically say, you know, the Fed and the interest rates has been bad for value because they're so low or that, um, you know, the value premium might not be as robust because too many people are, you know, uh, using it or in their process or maybe intangibles have, you know, affected sort of value. So I'm just wondering, and I'm not making you make it like a timing call here on value, but you know, how do you, when you think of like what has happened in values relative underperformance, let's say over the past five to 10 years, you know, what do you think of that? And do you have any outlook for the future of value stocks, let's say over the next, well, three to five years? Again, not a timing call, but just want to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, you asked about five questions, and I've got an answer to every <laughs> oh. single one of them. But Justin, be, before I end, you're going to have to bring me back to 
some of the specific ones. Uh, the big view on this is that um, I'm a contrarian at heart. Like we have, we've already mentioned, like we have some momentum models. So that those are like we in we invest in a diversified way in momentum, which is kind of the other side of the coin from value. But and I'm most happy uh, when everyone else um, is wringing their hands. Um, so I love value stocks right now. There's like, this is unbelievable. This is amazing. Um, I'm the guy who in 2009, after a crash, is hopping around the room going like, this is awesome, stocks are so cheap, we can buy many more shares with the same amount of money. And I ask people, you know, I ask investors like, so you've saved up and you invested, let's say you have $100,000 in stocks and you're new to this. Um, and you're sitting there at age 30, let's say, looking forward. Um, and uh, let me ask you a simple question. Do you, right now, today, do you want the stock market to go up or do you want it to go down? There are many gray answers in finance. Like there are many, it's like, well, you could do it this way. This is, there's a right and a wrong answer to this question. As long as you're still saving investing, in other words, as long as you're in your income producing year, the definitive correct answer to this question is, you want the market to go down as far as it can, as fast as it can, for as long as it can, as long as you still have a job so that you can continue to invest at cheap. Now, the day you retire or the day you need to pull it out to invest money in a house, that day you want it to be the opposite of that. But until then, you should celebrate every day that it goes down. That's true with factors as well. Like, is you know, we're, we're always rebalancing back to the mean. So all else being the same for today, I'd rather it be cheap while I'm adding more in. So I love this. I'm also human. And so, yeah, I like to, you know, shareholders have more positive comments about you when things are going up. Um, you know, I feel that part. Um, I feel that part as well. Justin, you had a couple more specific questions in there, though. I want to make sure I don't get away from them. Yeah, no, I think you, I mean, you, I think you, you hit the, you know, nail on the head there. Um, it was really just, you know, and it, maybe your outlook, I, I think you answered the question. I mean, I think you're bullish on sort of value stocks yes. because of the fact that they have, you know, relatively underperformed over a very long period of time. And that's, I, yeah. So you did answer the question. Thank you. I'll, let me just uh, say, so we're, we're sitting here in, um, uh, mid-February of 2021, um, as of right now, um, size and value both have been very, very far out of favor. And like, that's when like, I'm rebalancing, making more commitments to this. Um, in the last three months, uh, through from, you know, like no, beginning of November until now, um, size has come roaring back. So you, you have all these, you know, articles like, and the size effect is dead, or maybe it was never there. And I've read every academic and industry article I can get my hands on this. Um, and it's fascinating to see how people put this together. So some really good research too, by the way. I won't go into the details of that unless you want me to. But um, just to say, in the last relatively short time, they've come roaring back the, the truly small end of the spectrum, not what passes for small, but truly small has come roaring back. Um, and they're still, they've still got farther to run as we measure it. So they're not expensive yet. They're just, they were left behind for a whole blasted decade and they're really cheap. And so now they're not quite so cheap, but they're still on the good side. 
However, so he's like, is it too late to have gotten into that? It's like, well, you know, three months ago would have been better. But you, again, you're never going to time that exactly right. And I would say they're still uh, on the cheap end of the spectrum. Value, however, has not come roaring back. Value had a nice blip in, in November. And year to date so far, it's kind of just flat. It's gone back and forth. Um, and you break that down. But as, a, as an overall statement, um, value is is just flat and it's got it, to me it's it's the hundred year storm like we are that far you don't once in a lifetime you get value this cheap um and we're still sitting on a point in time that doesn't unfortunately mean it's not going to get cheaper it just doesn't mean that you just can't time these things and believe me i've tried like i would like to be able to do so we've done a pile of research on that um, as far back as 1985, I did uh, research on this, and Bridgeway has, you know, expanded it and replicated it twice, including a few years ago. Um, and so there are things you can do with moderating risk, um, but you have to be very careful. And I'm also a huge believer in don't use leverage. The beautiful thing about stocks is you can get them in and if, over the long haul. You know, they're just an amazing growth machine that anybody at even very low amounts of money um, can uh, can invest in. But you got to be willing to write it out. And if you borrow money to buy stocks, you get cashed out and, and you're cashed out at just the wrong time. Right. So I'm a believer in, you know, stocks for the long term diversification, you know, low cost, manage all that stuff. Um, but then. You know, have a plan, write it down, stick with it, uh, and those principles will serve you very well. It's interesting because you talk, you touched on this already, but uh, there's this tendency. You know, I'm, I'm like you. I look at value and I'm like, this is going to be a great. You know, if if I look out ten years, this is a great opportunity in value, and so I got to add exposure to it. But then when you get behind the scenes and the data and you look at it and you say, all right, well, I also thought it was great in 2018. I was pretty excited about value, and so the actual implementation of this factor timing is way, way harder. Than it seems and so it seems like from your answer you guys don't try to say let's overweight a factor like value just because it's out of favor is that right uh, as a rule that's correct there are some minor exceptions to that but as a rule um that's correct i, I like to again have a, a a target allocation and rebalance back to it by the way if you own an s p 500 index fund today you're hugely overweighted in growth if you start, you know, with two equal pieces and this one goes up 20% and this one goes up 150%, <laughs> which do you think you own more of? That's true inside an index as well. So I advise people, if you really want to balance back to a long-term historical average, you should be owning more of a value index fund than a growth index fund or, you know, consider a strategy um, that really focuses on that. For my uh, last question, I want to ask you about risk. And you, you've touched on this a little bit before, but it's such a hard thing to measure in the real world. You know, obviously those of us that are quants have our standard deviation and our, and our other ratios, but there, there's a lot more to it, when, especially when you bring in the fact that a lot of risk is tied to the behavior of the actual investors that are following your strategy. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about at, at a high level, how you view risk and how, how you look at it when you build portfolios. Um, we think of, you know, from a quantitative standpoint, we think of there's a return dial and a risk dial over here. Now there's, that's a simplification, but you know, fully half of the, of the exercise is around risk. Um, so a couple of things. Um, uh, organizationally, 
uh, we do some things there. For example, we have the investment team. You know, I reflect our view on how we use uh, uh, risk measures to design and implement and track and do uh, performance attribution um, for a strategy. Um, organizationally, uh, and, and then diversity of cognitive um, ability on the team, you know, so you have different people. We have a quarterly exercise, for example, that we'll be doing next week um, on uh, is there any risk factor that is true based on what's going on in the marketplace that we're not focused on, that we're not thinking about. So, you know, like there's a change in administration. Does, is that going to do something um, in a predictable way? Um, the Fed would be a great example. Um, you know, interest rates are really low. Are they going to go negative? Probably not. You know, you can't say definitely not because it's happened in another Western country, but it's probably, you know, it can't be very negative, right? Like people aren't going to pay you a whole lot of money to stick this money under your mattress. Um, so, uh, so we say this is an unusual time. Interest rates have a huge upside and very little downside. And when you can make statements like that, like make sure that your strategies aren't positioned in some way uh, that would blow you out of the water and um, manage that risk. Right now, dividend, high dividend yield stocks are, are the deal. If you believe that there's you know, significant upside potential for interest rates, um, people have replaced fixed income because interest rates are so low with high yielding stocks. And we can prove statistically these have been bid way up and they're much riskier than they used to. People think of high yield stocks as safe. Historically, they have been. Today, they're not. Um, it's not, if that's, if that's a variable that's not in a strategy and a model for us, we don't override the portfolio strategy, but we'll hug the index on that metric. So we're tracking every strategy at Bridgeway and saying, are there any where we're creep where the yield is creeping up above its benchmark? And if the answer to that is yes, then we look at zero cost ways of bringing it back to the to the benchmark. Um, so that's how we think um, about um, you know risk on the team. Organizationally, there's also a team uh, a committee at Bridgeway called the Portfolio Innovation and Risk Committee, who independently of the investment team is looking at all this stuff. They're there to uh, you know, it's, so it's cross team. There are people from marketing. There's the president of the company, myself as a CIO and a, and a head of the committee that's um, independent. Uh, and it's to look over the shoulder at the investment team and our strategies and to say, are we, are we behaving? You know, are the strategies behaving like in, in accordance with design? Are we doing what we say? Um, is there, are there any red flags? Uh, in either the performance looking back or exposures looking forward. Um, that's part of their job, and I'm proud that we have them, proud that we pay that much attention to risk because people are paying us to do so. John, before we wrap up, I just want to say I appreciate your the comments you made um, about investing for the long run in stocks for the long run uh, because I think that um, it's just very important to emphasize long-term investing when investing in the stock market. And so that coupled with, I think your, um, I guess it's uh, your your view or your humbleness, if you will, that you know, you, you know that the future is kind of unpredictable. And you know, we don't know if 
even though value stocks look cheap, I mean, it doesn't mean that they can't get cheaper. Um, and that this idea that, you know, looking at maybe historical data is the end all be all. It's just, it's not how investing is. And you just never know with investing. But if you think long-term dollar cost average, do the things that, you know, you know, can build wealth, that time is a, probably, you know, on most people's sides. And so I just think a lot of what you were saying and you sprinkled in there is really, really good um, thoughts and uh, views. So with that, um, thank you for sharing your thoughts and wisdom with us today. We've taken, it's Friday afternoon. Um, we'll let you kind of get on with uh, the weekend, hopefully. And um, uh, where can people go to learn more about Bridgeway, the strategies, your research, and what you guys are doing over there? Bridgeway.com would be a great place to start, Justin. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us, John. We appreciate it. Thank you, John. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it, gentlemen. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.